I want to give you a little bit heads up of how we're going to work the message tonight. I'm going to give a, a, a bit of the intro to our passage, a little bit longer than a short intro, and then we'll get into our scripture and go from there. So if we don't get to the reading right away, don't worry, we'll get there. It's uh, going to be Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. But before we get there, I want to introduce it by, um, with a little help from our fast food friends. Does that look good? That looks pretty good, actually. Especially because I haven't had supper, and I know my family has had snacks at least, but I haven't had anything. Uh, look at how crisp, it looks like romaine lettuce, nice red tomatoes. This is what they advertise. This is what Burger King advertises, the Whopper. This is what you get. <laughs> no, I don't want it that anymore. <laughs> advertised? What you see is what you get. Just so we don't pick on Burger King, I want to show you McDonald's. It's a Big Mac. That looks pretty good, huh? Two patties, nice lettuce, perfect bun. This is what they advertise. That's what you get. All right, it has a bite taken out of it, which detracts from it, but just to be fair, we included Burger King, McDonald's. I'll show you Wendy's. Chicken sandwich. Mmm, look at that lettuce. Bunch perfect. Crisp chicken. There it is. There's a little bit of difference between what's advertised and what's delivered. What's advertised and what is received. And as thinking about this, thinking about this message, I chose to use these because I don't know about you, but I often feel like my faith compared to Jesus is like this. We just, we're wrapping up a, a, a series on the miracles of Jesus, and we looked at the robust ministry of Jesus through these amazing displays of God's power. And then uh, we looked at passages where, where Jesus says, greater things than these shall you do. And then I look at the amazing ministry that Jesus has and Jesus calls to do. And I have to admit, when I look at my own life and my own ministry, sometimes I feel like it's not quite what Jesus' is as advertised look is, but more like what you see is what you get. In fact, uh, about almost a year ago, first week of December, I had this weird prayer phenomenon begin to happen where at really times that you think were ungodly, of course there's really no ungodly times, but humanly speaking, I was being woken up. And uh, if you know me, then you know that as soon as I hit the pillow, I'm out. And then I'm out until my alarm goes off. And, and you know, um, tornado sirens can go off. Babies can scream. I, I developed a great case of dad ear. I don't wake up easy. And uh, so in this, this early December of last year, I was uh, being woken up at like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. And, and when, I, when I woke up, I was awake, completely awake, and I had this desire to begin praying. And so thinking that this is God's prompting, I decided I would get out of my bed, walk down to the, to the basement family room, and start praying. At first, I wasn't quite sure what to pray, so I would mostly pray for you guys and uh, anybody who's sick or ministries that were going on. 
And then after a few mornings like that, you know, I'm starting to get, this is awful, all right, but this is, I just air out my sinfulness. I'm starting to get a little irritated. I want to sleep a full night, but I'm being woken up to pray, and I can't quite figure out why. And then it hits me. I'm praying, asking for God's help in knowing what to pray for. And I really felt God was communicating me this message. Mike, I know you believe 100%. I know you have incredible intellectual belief. But I want to call you on the carpet in your operational faith, your operational belief. Do you really believe in a heartfelt, day-to-day -day way the words that you read and confess on the pages of my word. It was a very sobering prayer time. And for the next few days, few weeks, I began to pray for, really, forgiveness. God, forgive me for, uh, you're right. You know what? Jesus calls us to some incredible things. And I'm not, I, I can intellectually assent to those, but I'm not giving myself fully to those things. I don't fully believe that greater things can be done through me. And so I began to read the Bible in a new way. And it's been about nine months. And I got to say, one, it's a humbling experience. But two, it's an invigorating experience. Because I've been praying now through script, through script asking God, make this real. Help me to see that these really outlandish, countercultural, divine things can be possible here and now, can be alive in my life. And God is making that alive in my life. I've got a long way to go. But I give you that intro because I can't be the only one feeling like that. I've gone through seminary, I've gone through, uh, you know, hours and hours pouring through the original language of many of these books in the Bible. I know the word. Surely I can't be the only one. And so, as we wrap up this miracles of Jesus, I want to look at this text, and I, I want to look at it from the standpoint of Jesus' miraculous, powerful work is not over. And I believe that's the message Paul would preach. We're going to look at Ephesians 6. It's one of the last words that Paul gives to the Ephesians. And um, it's very fitting for a wrap-up of the, mir the miracles of Jesus. So let's look at that, that, at that together. And uh, I'm going to focus in on just the first few verses, but we'll read 10 through 20. Let's look at that together. Actually, Chris, can you take over from here so I can read? Thanks. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, this is my final word to you. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer requests, prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's ask for God's help in applying his word. Heavenly Father, these are, again, this is another passage that sometimes I like to read through quick because it contains a lot of stuff that is uncomfortable. I pray that you help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Help us to push us into a deeper surrender and abandon to you and what you do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Does this passage make anyone else a little bit uncomfortable? It, there's a lot of talk about unseen things here. There's also a lot of... Uh, Paul is urging us to do things that we might not do on a day-in, day-out basis. Look at verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Are you strong in the Lord? And be strong in his mighty power. Are you strong in Christ's mighty power? Paul continues. In order to be strong in the Lord and strong in his mighty power, you better put on the full armor of God. That you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle isn't against those outside the church who are up against Christianity. Our struggle isn't against our Muslim neighbors. Our struggle isn't against our agnostic uncles or cousins. Our struggles are against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And, Paul says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're getting it from both sides, the world and the heavenly realms. And then he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. And he goes on and lists what the armor of God is. And I've heard sermons on each of these, like Armor of God series, and we're not going to really get into these too much. I want to focus on Paul's big idea here, being strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. But the armor of God is righteousness, truth, 
readiness to share the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. But let, let's scroll back. Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the evil powers at work in the world. And in, in the previous verse, it says, put on the full arm of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Well, uh, what, one of the most confusing genre in the Bible is, is uh, apocalyptic literature. It's even hard to say. Um, and uh, knowing that it's difficult, I decided to take some classes on it in seminary. And uh, actually, uh, Laura took them with me. She can vouch that I was there and doing my homework. But uh, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and once you get into apocalyptic literature, you, you realize that John is quoting a lot from Daniel. So then when you study Daniel, and you start to get, get the, the, full, um, the, the full effect of the Bible scope of the end times and Satan's work in the end times, um, you'll, you'll come to the conclusion, and Daniel really helps this out, that Satan generally works in two categories. Okay, it says... Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Well, the first category that the devil's work falls under is a category that we largely escape, and that's persecution. You heard the stories around the globe. Now, some of you might be saying, well, you know, our country's headed that way. It might be headed that way, but we just don't experience the persecution like much of the global church does. We have uh, missionary friends in India. We had missionary friends in China, but they actually got booted out. And we would always get these updates about what's happening. We have uh, uh, Christian brothers in, uh, in India. And talk about persecuted church. Satan tries to disrupt the growth of God's kingdom through persecution. Looking at Revelation, looking at Daniel, there's another category that Satan uses besides persecution. And that is, I don't know how to best describe it except to say sleepiness. Complacency. Think of it this way. Think of a generator running, supplying power and then the supply cord is pulled. And so the generator is still running, but whatever needs the power is not hooked up to it. Satan works through persecution on one hand, and then trying to bring complacency, sleepiness, sit, sitting down on the bench and not getting into the game. It, it, he tries to bring this into the church, into the Christians' lives. And you know what? He is so, so effective at doing that in the Western church. I wonder if we could all be honest and have taken a, an entrance poll as we walked in here. Are you strong in the Lord? Are you strong in his mighty power? How many of us would have checked off yes? See, the devil 
His main scheme for the church in the United States is to distract us, to sideline us, to get us caught up in ourselves, to get us to keep Christ off the throne of our lives and place ourselves, self, self-interest, self-goals, self-reliance on the throne of our lives. And he does a great job, and he does it in so many ways. Paul says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against Satan's attempts to sideline us, to make us sleepy, make us complacent. Because Paul wants us to be strong in the Lord and mighty in Christ's power. So I want to redefine reality as Christ has painted reality. I want to redefine reality tonight as it is, not as society depicts it. So that we can be reminded of who we are in Christ. The first, uh, the first armor is stand firm then with the belt of truth. And so I want to apply that tonight, the belt of truth. And, you know, I am uh, not the most eloquent preacher. Uh, and, and I'm often jealous when I hear sermons by like Tim Keller and Andy Stanley and others. And... and uh, uh, writers too. I'll read something. I'll be like, "Oh, that is just worded great." And so I, I, I want to, I want to repaint reality, but I want to use uh, someone else's words if, if you will allow me the pleasure. And uh, there's a there's a pastor that I've been listening to. His name is Eric Ludi, and uh, he does an incredible job of redefining what life is supposed to look like, what life really is in Christ. So allow me to preach his words for a second. Let me read from his work. He says, we were created, I gotta take a sip, because actually, if you know Eric Ludi, he is a high-powered guy, and once he gets going, he writes the same way, so here we go. This is our reality in Christ. We were created for God's glory, for his pleasure. We were created to dwell with the Almighty and reflect his perfection. We were created to find our great fulfillment in him. We are created to be ruled by him and animated by his presence. Our struggles are not against flesh and blood and packs. It's against rulers and authorities of this present darkness. We were created to be ruled by him and animated by his presence. We were created to be enraptured in his love. To be mesmerized by his grace. We were created to be his bride. To bear his holy name. To be his temple. To be his body. To partake in his joyful life. We were created to abide, to draw our life from him, to bear the fruit of his person, and, and to show the love of heaven in human flesh. We were created for a sacred garden, an Eden of the purest delight. But the serpent, Satan, slithers in every garden with enticing words and twisted truths. His message is always the same, though it's cloaked in a thousand different costumes. This whole drama shouldn't be about God, he whispers. It should be all about you. And over and over again, throughout history, since the very first rebellion, Satan strokes self with the idea of being a god. And we, like Adam and Eve, partake of the forbidden fruit, placing self's agenda on God's command. Above God's command. The great rebellion began nearly six millennia ago and still continues in each of our hearts to this day. The disease of sin, self's unlawful claim to the throne, has taken hold of each of our souls. 
And the spirit of man, once vibrant and alive in the Garden of Eden, is dead and withered up like a gnarled stick. But most disturbing is that the soul's butler, the flesh, has clothed himself in royal splendor, placed a paper crown of power upon his lowly head, covenanted with self's deceit, and gained control in each of our sickly bodies. This is the great woe in the entire universe. Man is broken off from God without means of return. Man has rebelled and his just punishment is eternal hellfire. But then, why is there no weeping, no mourning, no anguish over this terrible problem? Because man does not even know of his grave and miserable condition. He is numb to the pain of sin. He is blind to this all-consuming disease that renders his life and body useless to God. A nuclear reactor leaks toxic waste within his soul, like a frog within a boiling stew of hell. A slow and subtle destruction is at hand. But man's soul feels nothing, save the gnawing emptiness of it all. Man dances with death, yet the whole while believes he is prancing about with life. Who will tell us of our state? Who will awaken us from our stupor? Is there any voice that can break through the sinful fog about our soul and clear the wax from our fleshly ears? God, Jehovah God, the very one who stretched out the heavens like a curtain, laid the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, makes his, the clouds his chariot and walks on the wings of the wind. Jehovah God, the very one who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. This very one, this very God, saw my need and came to rescue me. Jehovah God has done it. For nothing, nothing, nothing would stand in his way. For God was moved by love. And Jesus Christ, God incarnate, was born this Messiah, this holy rescuer. He was born a baby, lived a sinless life of faith, purity, and love, and died as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He makes all things new. He has broken down the wall of partition. He has removed what stood as an obstacle. He has created a new and living way into his presence. Great God Jehovah has done it. He has conquered sin and death. He has condemned sin in the flesh. He has created the most extraordinary, most profound, most breathtaking rescue strategy for his church. The same spirit that raised up our Messiah from the dead, he desires to implant within our hearts, the heart of his church, to raise us from our spiritual death and to transform our earthly existence. Almost done. He removed the barrier that stood between God and man. He forgave us our sins and destroyed the power of sin in order to impart to his bride himself. The gift of God is Jesus Christ in spirit form, deposited within the bodies of those who believe. This is the inheritance. This is the promised land. This is the kingdom. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the garden enclosed. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the set apart. This is the purchase of Calvary. Jesus Christ died that man could once again house the glory, house his glory. That man could once again bring his holy heart pleasure. That man could once again dwell with God and God could dwell with man. That man could once again find his complete fulfillment in the person of God. That man could be his bride, bear his holy name, be his temple, be his body, and partake of his infinite joy. That man could abide and find the living sap of the great God of the universe flowing through his veins. That man could once again bear the fruit of his person, show the love of heaven and human flesh, and become an Eden within for his satisfaction 
and for his delight. We are no longer on our own. We have been bought with a price. It can no longer be us who live, but Christ living his life within us. We must take all that is precious within our hearts, break it open, and pour it upon the worthy one. For our Jehovah God has come to earth and rescued us. We must yield. We must give up our throne, deny our flesh its voice, and allow a new master, a holy master, to take the reins of our life. We must relinquish our way in exchange for his way. Forfeit our life in exchange for his life and surrender our name, our glory, in order to share his name and his glory. How can one resist such an opportunity? A way has been made for us, undeserving paupers, to share in the life, the love, and the joy. Thank you for indulging me in that super long illustration, but I thought that is a perfect picture of the truth that we are to gird on every day, the truth of the gospel. As we went through our Miracle Message series, we've seen some incredible stuff. And each week we took a principle away that we could apply. But tonight I want us to listen to Jesus' truth. John 14, verse 12, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Do you believe that the miracles are over now that Jesus and the early apostles are dead? Jesus is alive, sorry. The early church is dead. Do you believe that miracles cease now? There is nothing in the Bible that says, okay, miracles are going to stop happening now. Then why don't we see God more tangibly at work in our everyday lives? I believe we don't give him the faith or the space to move in our world, to move in our workplace, to move in our family life. Too often, we plant ourselves firmly on the throne of our lives while Jesus hangs out in the background. Galatians 3, 5 says, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Paul is saying, hey, God gives us his spirit and works his miracles among us because we believe what we've heard. We believe the message that Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came and solved our sin dilemma, gave us freedom from sin and victory over sin so that we can live, live a victorious life in Christ. Miracles do happen all the time. God is at work all the time. Will we symbolically dig those ditches 
in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces so that God can fill them up with water. I challenge you and myself as we approach this new season of life, we get back to the fall routines to include God in the routine. Whether it's writing this on a note card and stick it in, in the bathroom mirror or the rear view mirror or, or the refrigerator, something along the lines of, God, I pull myself off the throne and I put Christ on the throne. Help me to see reality through Christ. I guarantee our fall will be different with Christ seated firmly on the throne of our lives.